Exodus 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This follows the incident with the golden calf, as we read in the previous chapter. They were given the elaborate instructions for the building of the tabernacle. They had been given, given the laws of God. They have been assured of the love of God, God's intimate involvement in everything that they undertook. This is a new nation. with a new covenant with the living God, unlike any other nation. And they sinned very grievously against God when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And we saw the effect of that was estrangement from God along with death to thousands of people because they were very wicked. They substituted the living God for something they made with their hands. How offensive that is. And they bowed down to it. And they danced and they committed immorality. Moses had called for the people who would be on the Lord's side. In other words, people who were loyal, people who revered God in His holiness, that He is the living God, is the only God. There were people who reaffirmed their covenant with God, that as God said, I will be your God, you'll be my people, keep the terms of the covenant, all the sons of Levi said, we haven't departed from God. These things happened because the high priest, Aaron, yielded to the evil desire of the people. The sons of Levi went to the side of the Lord when they went to the side of Moses. There are people who find fault with the servants of God. People who, no matter how many times they hear God's word proclaimed, miracles, signs, and wonders, they have the audacity to question. They have the audacity to find fault. And God, time and time again, causes people to fall when they challenge his authority or servants who are following him. We see this often in the Bible. And so that serves as a warning to us that when the ministers of God are following the will of God and led by the Spirit of God to 
submit to them and take their side is to do as the Apostle teaches later by the Spirit of God again a service to one's own soul it's an honor to God and people are called to respect God and respect the servants that casual attitude toward the people who represent God can be taken as a casual attitude toward God himself the one thing that needs to be crucified is S-E-L-F and along with the crucifixion of the self is the acknowledgement of spiritual immaturity and the desire to leave that behind once and for all say God I want to grow not just grow in knowledge but grow in wisdom and in the will to be humble it's the task of the people who are entrusted with that vision and that call namely the servants of God to help the people to mature to be Christ-like the people in Exodus 32 cast off all restraint they infect, in effect said why do we need to regulate ourselves why do we need laws they didn't say it with their mouths but they acted it out exactly as they really felt in their hearts Moses being away was an excuse for their true colors to be on full display what was in their hearts came out and so it is with the presence of God through the servants of God through the leaders there's a sense of external humility external obedience and again we must reference the Apostle Paul who said don't do it only when I'm there because I can see your behavior when I'm not there also in other words God is calling for integrity it's important to check our hearts this is where we can fail miserably and as we read in the portions of scripture to come very soon very shortly that just as someone's alcoholism can be transferred to the children there are physiological changes and things that can be passed on through the DNA itself physically and physiologically biologically so the spiritual addictions can be passed on too if one is impulsive and impatient and short tempered those sins can be passed on to children and grandchildren if one thinks well I'll be who I am I'm my own man I'm my own woman maybe I'm a manager maybe I have people under me maybe I have experience in this world and I can do what I want that very nature will be transferred to one's generation maybe generations and that ugly reality will come back to stare us in the face hence it's imperative that we crucify those things never think that we can get by because we can manage 
such as a functioning quote-unquote alcoholic is really a foolish person. Why? Because they're self-deceived. They think that if I can behave in society to a degree that I'm not found out as obtrusive or annoying and hold my liquor, so to speak, then it's okay. It's all well and good. But the fact is they're destroying themselves and setting themselves up for further destruction and people around them, people who belong to their families. The same way greed, impulsivity, anger. We must never, ever forget that sin is never an isolated phenomenon. Always pervades every aspect of a person's life and also their generations. The Lord pronounces that expressly in the portions we're going to read soon. So what we see in Exodus 32 caused God to act a certain way in Exodus 33. He had to. He's not a God that looks the other way when evil is being done. Unlike many parents, many human beings who live by the devil's system of justice, which is simply serve yourself. Don't bother with anybody else's problems as long as it doesn't affect you, at least superficially. God is not like that. God cares about justice. He cares about holiness as much as he cares about compassion and forgiveness. We went extensively into Exodus 32. The Lord gave us quite a bit two days ago and it was rehearsed again, perhaps in measure yesterday. It's important to remember, as I mentioned two days ago, this is not just Israel's story, it's our story. If we're still guilty of those things, unless we've repented and said, I want no part of this, what is that that they did? It was not just the forging of an idol in fire. It was a surrender to evil and sin, beginning with pride, casting God's words behind their backs. It's not only enough to look at the disease, but the symptoms, because one cannot or may not always see the disease for what it really is. But symptoms can point to something wrong. How do we judge ourselves, have a fair assessment of ourselves to protect ourselves from falling like they did in Exodus 32? Is to look for the slightest arrogance that may come up, maybe not expressed outwardly, but it's there. The moment we detect that we're arrogant or proud, we have to let something happen that is described in the Bible as a conscience smiting us. In other words, there's an alarm that goes off in the conscience of every Christian that says, you know that I was wrong. What? What did I do? I didn't say anything mean to anyone. I didn't give a mean look. But pride was manifest inside and the person knows it 
It's important right away to confess it to the Lord. Whether anyone else knows about it or not, God knows and you know. To prevent the pitfall from being entered into. The moment we feel that it's okay to act rude, we must catch us up and say, that's not becoming of the Christian. You ever see little children in kindergarten or nurseries or even in elementary school or even in high school? They never grow out of that selfishness and it's manifest in the way they give a look to people when they're displeased, when they're dispersed, uh, disturbed that is, and they're not hesitant at all to show that selfishness, arrogance, very much unbecoming of a believer to make all kinds of faces. Isn't it ugly? Don't we train our children? You should not look like that. Perhaps we don't. Some people don't care. Some people actually teach them, go ahead and express yourself. Give them a piece of your mind. These are the type of things that set a person up and their generation for greater arrogance and greater pride if it's not destroyed at the root level. Because if we're not humble toward man, how can we ever be expected to be humble before God? If we make faces when we're disturbed before people, we don't restrain ourselves and say, wait a minute, don't act that out. Check yourself and be humble, be pleasant. How will we ever be right before God? There are people who can read the Bible, they can take notes, they can even share the gospel, but they have this ugliness about them. What is it? The same ugliness that was manifested in Exodus 32, which is do as you please. Who cares about laws, Christian principles? Who cares about the man of God or the servants of God? Who cares about God himself? Listen, we will get up early and burnt offerings and peace offerings will be produced. And then we'll do as we please, eat, drink, and rise up to play. It's very, very important to remember these are the type of things that are left unchecked before bigger falls happen. God is very concerned about the way we make faces. He's very concerned about the motivation, the feelings. He wants us to be clear, inside and out. Can't we be that way? How many people this morning may think, you know, I can do things for people and even say nice things when I feel like it, but I will manifest a piece of my mind. What's wrong with that? It's my personality. It's who I am. Pastor, if you want me to stop making faces when I'm disturbed and stop saying things that may be a little bit on the rude side, you're going to take my personality away. Well, that's the devil's personality that must go. That's not your personality. We are speaking with someone late last night and were discussing familiar spirits. In other words, demons that come to 
appear as a human being, personalities, and then try to influence the human being to take ownership of that and become that demon. It's dangerous not to be alert and aware and humble. To be able to detect that this thing, this feeling that I'm getting, it's not the new me. In Ephesians, it's written that we have a new nature, a new person. Romans is written everywhere in Galatians. So with that feeling, the impulsivity or that feeling impulse comes to act rude or nasty or question when it's not supposed to happen. We must know that that's a demon trying to influence us. We have to reject it on the spot. Otherwise, we'll carry ugliness to the grave and have a lot of explaining to do on Judgment Day. God's not concerned whether we memorize even the whole Bible when our nature has not been crucified, that old nature. You see how pride can cause what happened to them in Exodus 32? Lack of humility leads to impatience. All kinds of things. Watch out if you have a kindergarten syndrome within you as an adult. It's possible that we can manifest it, but it doesn't make it right. We have to treat it immediately as a foreign substance that can damage our souls. We have to say, Lord, my God, help me to be a pleasant person, Lord. God doesn't say be perfect instantly with that. But we have to have a desire. First of all, we need to be able to diagnose, wait a minute, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Maybe somebody's rolling their eyes right now when they hear this. We need to decide whether we want to really be Christ-like or we want to be people who will take some things of Christianity and Christ say that we want Christ but really don't want it because it makes us very uncomfortable to be humble especially to people who we think don't deserve us to be humble before them it gives us uh, some kind of feeling of empowerment when we can oppress somebody put them down How can we ever serve God if we catch attitudes? How can we ever serve God if we're very insensitive to others' needs and others' feelings? How can we ever be proper in the presence of God if we don't check these things? Whoever would like to grow spiritually and take off like an airplane Spiritually. I say, Lord, I'm afraid I really haven't looked at myself in the mirror. There's always a casual glance and a fixing up here and there and saying, well, you look beautiful. And then go and judge other people. We need to spend a longer time looking at ourselves so all the flaws can be taken away. Make no mistake about it. Exodus 32 happened. Full-blown idolatry, sexual immorality. Because the seeds of those manifestations were already present in the Israelites 
who participated in those things. It always starts with pride. Always starts with lack of humility. It always starts with making faces. How? Meaning, we let a, just a little bit of it manifest. It's okay. It's not a big deal. We need to say, Lord, I really want your personality that's been imprinted into my system when I got born again to come out. And that's the only thing I want to be seen. The only thing I want to have seen. God's gentleness is kindness. And when we fail, if we fail, we need to be honest that integrity is so critical. It's possible to go through life training school for the next two, three years, or however long the Lord has it. Come to every morning call and all the church services and play box app and all the recordings. Do you know it's possible to do all of that with the wealth that God has given us by His grace? still have ugly elements about our Christian so-called nature, our behavior. It's possible. The only one to blame for that on Judgment Day will be us. But it's also possible, having heard the word that's sharper than a double-edged sword, to come and tear that up, do a healing work, make us whole, to be just like Jesus. The desire has to be there. The humility and honesty have to be there. What good are the four pillars to know and memorize and even conceptualize? We don't desire that sincerely. Make it a point, Lord. I don't want to be honest the way I think honesty looks or other people necessarily, but what you say, Lord. I don't want to be humble just doing the bare minimum when I feel like it. It's like children who are taught to say please and thank you and hold the door for people and what polite social etiquette looks like. And what do you find about your children? They're very selective. Why? Because you're that way. But when we look at Christ, we see God so loved the world. That love is manifest by humility, meekness, gentleness, patience. How can I go on with Bible study and learning things if I don't take this seriously and say, Lord, after all, the essence is my character and my behavior. Well, God is so gracious. We see in Exodus 33, he says, I'll still take you to the promised land. Isn't that so gracious of God? He could have wiped everyone out, but he relented and he said, you're still en route to the promised land and I will do what I said I will do I will step in and drive out your enemies so you can possess it but always remember every promise has a condition but also it's inclusive or the eligibility for the promises inherited is people who can obey people with a remnant God says go up Let's get moving. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I want to tell you right now, if I go with you, I may wipe you out because you're really testing me. 
stiff-necked people. See this combination of God's justice and holiness, truth, along with his loving kindness, his forgiveness, his patience. He's perfect. With that perfection comes warnings to protect his people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornament. Some people have taken this verse and others from the New Testament and they've made a whole doctrine out of it. Well, it's clear God doesn't want, to, want us to wear jewelry. They just read into it what they want. The clear context is these people are wickedly prostituting their bodies and putting on these ornaments and fine clothing, dancing with the devil. God said it's not a time for you to jump up and down and feel good about yourself and see how your hair looks, how your makeup looks and how your wristwatch looks on your hand. How many believers do that? It's so sad. When things are very grave in their families, in their spiritual lives, they're still caught up with the image. Cursed be the image when the character is not there. We have to say, Lord, I want to be true on the inside. I don't have time to play games. Let me be right before God and then I can enjoy the things that God gives. All the things that may be the externals. God is not against them. But God says, right now, you're in big trouble spiritually. Your heart is not right. So don't go around parading like you have a good time and you can enjoy yourselves with ornaments, fine clothing, jewelry, all this stuff. What then does it mean in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that the king or the people or whoever sinned humble themselves with what? Sackcloth and ashes. Why? They're making a very, very bold statement, very clear statement that it's not a time to celebrate. We need to get this ugliness out of our lives. For that would be hypocrisy. And God was helping the people. He said, be real and be a person, people of integrity. He said, I want to take you. Whoever is willing to follow me, whoever is willing to renounce that evil, I still want to take you to the promised land. Praise God. God's program, his plan continues. But the people, the passengers on that plane to heaven, they change depending upon whether they abide by the rules or not. So it's not a surprise. The God who's perfect and full of love will continue his program. His plan cannot be thwarted. Who can stop God? And he wants to take as many people as, with, as he can with him to paradise. Among his own children. The rules don't change. He says you've got to be holy. You've got to love. You've got to be humble. You've got to be honest. Don't think that you can look good on the outside and come with me because I'm not going with you. Well, we looked in a certain measure of detail at the Sabbath. We noted how the Sabbath is rest and also wholeness. Moses is going to ask God, 
Lord, I want to see your glory. God, I want you to go with me. If you don't go with this, Lord, there's no point. God's presence can give rest. Only God's presence can give the true rest. The same Jesus who said, I will give you rest. Gives us wholeness. He restores us. Only in God's presence can we have that green meadow or green pastures experience. Only in God's presence can we have the still waters experience. God and God alone can give us that Sabbath rest. His presence going with a human being or group of people can guarantee rest. His presence is power. His presence is also peace. A type of peace that passes all understanding. Before we get to what Moses asked God, the glory and the presence, and how God responded to him. We're going to continue reading here. Exodus chapter 33. May the Lord and his word make a deeper impression upon us this morning. Exodus 33. I read a few verses, but I'd like somebody to read verses 1 to 6 and then someone else from 7 to 11, please. Exodus 33 verses 1 to 6, NKJV version. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they moaned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Praise God. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. 
And it came to pass that everyone who saw the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. If we go back to the beginning, we see God deliberated. He had a decision to make. If you are muted, please check your lines and just mute your lines. God deliberated. He had to make a decision. Because he said clearly, Take those things that you were dancing around with, the jewelry and the fine clothes, all those things. That may know what to do with you. Doesn't God know what to do? Doesn't God already know what to do? God is not only in eternity past to eternity future. He is an eternity present. It seems like an oxymoron or paradox. But in his eternal nature, there's a present tense or real-time deliberation also. We, we cannot comprehend it fully, humanly speaking, but the Spirit of God can reveal. In other words, God makes decisions according to the behavior. It's not simply that God knows everything and he winds something up and he already knows so he doesn't really have to think about anything. No, God thinks. Clearly here he says that I may know what to do with you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know what to do. But he's telling them what you just did is going to require me to deal carefully with you. And according to my justice, according to my nature, according to my forgiveness, according to my plan, according to your actions, you see what I'm going to do. So in our lives, 
what we do can alter God's dealings with us. Once saved, always saved says God puts you in a plan. He's got you on the plane. There's no way you're getting off. Even if you kick and scream and grab the pilot and whatever you do, that plane will not land anywhere to drop you off. You can get on a boat. Once God puts you on the boat, you can shoot up holes in the boat. You can throw everything around and cause a riot. That boat's not going to stop anywhere. Nobody's going to judge you. You're locked in for life. Once saved, you're always saved. Covenant implies a contract with terms. We see very, very clearly, although the covenant treaty was a common thing in the ancient world. Rulers would have these contracts, these covenants drawn up, these treaties. And they would have a certain order and it would include terms. And the terms would be binding even to the point of one having to forfeit life if the terms are violated in certain cases. Both were bound with that. That's how strong a covenant was. You see how God made the terms very clear and he bound himself. He said, I will be your God. You'll be my people. Important for us to understand those in the new covenant, the entire history over here, because it's not just a collection of events as we may study in school. It's not just so we won't repeat uh, the mistakes according to man's ideas of mistakes and success and failure, but the biblical history reveals the nature of God and how he makes a contract and how people who violate the contract, what happens to them, how they lose everything if they persist. But, the nature of God is revealed in His great forgiveness that when somebody violates it, depending upon how grievous that violation is, there are opportunities to get back on good terms with God. Isn't that marvelous? Where else can you find forgiveness like this in the ancient world or in the present world? What other society or religion would have such a God like this or a ruler? That when we do manifest ugliness that's from the flesh we can run to our father and say that's not you Lord that's not your nature at all I'm not here for me myself and I I'm here to represent my father and that right there that behavior was not in keeping with your will Lord please forgive me it's totally contradictory to your nature I don't want any part of it we come to God and here we see that he is deliberating. He's weighing carefully what to do with these people. And he's telling them that. See, he doesn't have to tell them that. He's telling them that. Now you caused a pause over here. 
things were going well. I know you murmured and you complained and you got me angry because who else would do that except some ungrateful, wicked people? But because I drew you out of Egypt, my firstborn, Israel, as he called them, I want to help you to inherit what I have for you. And I'm willing to forgive. Let's start over. God could have started over with other people, but he stuck with these people. And what did he do? He began to tell them about that place of worship, the tabernacle. He wanted to tell them, I'm willing to live with you right in your midst. And here they are making another God after all of that. So God is deciding what to do. And he says, the plan will continue, but who goes along with the plan and benefits will be determined by your obedience or disobedience. Why do we keep repeatedly talking about this, the symptoms and the disease and the obedience and disobedience and God's nature and the people's wickedness? You know why? Apparently, much of the Christian world today, many, many churches, they don't read this. And if they do, they already premeditated, have premeditated that this is that and it doesn't belong to us really. It's just kind of there for us to look at. Let's get to the Gospels. Learn all about the power and the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. But you see, this shows us human nature. The whole Word of God is a mirror. If I neglect this, it's like neglecting a part of the mirror where I won't be able to see a part of me. Who would like to have a broken mirror and think that they look fine and they can only see half of the face? No wonder modern Christianity in large measure is not only fragmented spiritually, but there's a mutation. Mutants. It's like somewhere along the line is as if the true spiritual DNA that God gave in giving salvation, giving a brand new person on the inside, some bad genes were inherited. It didn't come from God. Spiritual mutation happens when believers neglect portions of the Word of God. But when we read the Word of God and we pause and we stop and we meditate we have to say my God what did they do how could they do this Lord I don't want to be like that and it starts with that little ugly thing we must remember this always the symptom must be taken very very seriously otherwise the disease will manifest and can kill us Notice what the Lord says here. He says, I'm not going with you. In other words, God will watch them. But the way he wanted to be in their midst, he stepped back because they're rebellious and he's holy. And he says, you can't play like this, otherwise I'll break out on you and you will die. So I'm going to step back. I will watch over you, but I can't go with you. 
Do we understand the import of that? The full import of that? How carefully we should be. Yes, God is loving and forgiving and patient. Merciful. He's so good. But He's the same God as He was yesterday. Today and forever will be. That's why in our church, by the grace of God, we emphasize continually over and over and over again. As someone said to the great evangelist D.L. Moody, I believe in England when he was preaching, you keep preaching on faith. This is like the seventh day you're preaching on faith. Can we hear something new? Mr. Moody, when will you stop preaching on faith? Moody was known to be a person not so grammatically correct or eloquent, but to the point he said, when you get it. When we can say, my house is holy, 100% holy, dedicated to God. You come through my house, you won't find one object that doesn't speak of the glory of God. Not one thing that takes away the glory of God or brings shame into the midst of my house because my house belongs to the Lord. Until we can say, my body is 100% holy, dedicated to God. You should keep hearing it. And... Even when we say it, we can go deeper. We need to keep hearing it. That's safe for us. So whether it's what you're hearing this morning here, for anyone you hear anywhere preaching, continually holiness, repentance, faith, humility, honesty, love. Know that that's the best thing you can ever hear. It'll keep you safe. If ever you feel like, oh, when are we going to go to the other stuff, something is wrong with you. You can know that for sure. It's like someone saying, well, John 3.16, God so loved the world. I know all of that. Can we get past that, please? Something is seriously wrong with that person. They do not understand the grace of God and the love of God to what degree he has loved them and how grateful they should be and live in accordance with that revelation of his love and his gift. God says plainly that don't act like everything's okay and you can have a merry old time. We have a problem here. We need to deal with it. Take off those jewelry, ornaments, your fine clothing, all your dancing paraphernalia. Look what happened to Moses in verse 7. He had to move away. He knew God's presence can't be there. He just told them, I'm going to wipe them out. I can't be too close to them. He wanted to be close to them, but they blew it. God said, I can't be too close because something's going to happen. It's not going to be good for them. Can we understand that? Isn't that right of God? So what did Moses do? That tabernacle was taken outside of the camp. And people watched. It says they worshipped. Would to God that that worship was a true worship, deep worship, permanent worship. But they worshipped. They all saw that pillar of cloud standing, as is written here, at the tabernacle door. Moses went in and spoke to the Lord. 
he was considered a friend of God, like Abraham, his forefather, because he was loyal, because he feared the Lord, and he was a man who was a one-track person. He lived for the glory of God. How can I be a friend of God? can't just sing a song as I recall preaching in California, Anaheim, California some years ago. And I sang some lines of that song, I'm a friend of God. And I explained what it means to be a friend. It's not just singing a song and claiming anything. As you hear from Pastor Gerbo often, it's not our own certification that I'm a friend of God, I love God. God has to say that. The Apostle Paul said, the one who commends himself is not the one who is wise and commendable. It's the one whom the Lord commends. Don't be too quick to say, well, I know God loves me and God this and that. Well, God loves us as he loves all mankind. But that intimate relationship that we should have as believers are the exclusive rights and privileges those who receive him as it says in John 1.12 as many as received him to them gave he the power of the authority to be called who? the true sons of the children of God God has to say that because we really receive him how do we really receive him? every word he speaks becomes law in our lives only those people can be friends of God you think Moses could say well God I kept 9 out of the 10 commandments you can create me on a curve. Well, that's a 90, Lord. And even if your passing mark is perfection, can, we, can, you, can you please just step me up a little bit? Give me those extra bonus points. He was a man who was surrendered to the Lord. Don't you want to be a friend of God? Don't we want to be called friends of God? Have intimate communion with God? Use mightily by the Lord you've got to be 100% loyal absolutely surrendered to him watch out for that ugly self that comes in and says well I'll play God today I'll do what I want to do and I'll act this way to that person no we have to let the conscience smite us and say no 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 that's not God you see Amos says how can two be agreed except they walk together? The friends of God walk with God. Which means there's an agreement, there's a fellowship, there's a communion. They're actually walking in the light. So don't you dare call yourself a friend of God or a child of God who knows God, who's doing well. All these things put together. If you're not doing what God said to do, the way you deal and treat God and the way you treat other people. To be a friend of God, very important, what the prerequisites are. He, not anybody could just go speak face-to-face -face with God. And there was this young man, Joshua, who stayed there. Some have hypothesized that, well, Joshua's probably guarding that place because people were so curious. They may venture to go out there near there and get killed. But it was more than that. He was a man who, yes, he was being groomed to be the next leader, but he genuinely loved God. He loved God. He revered God and he loved Moses. He respected Moses. 
We hear often about Elijah and Elisha and the messages here. See how Elisha loved Elijah. He was loyal to him. So my father, the chariots of Israel. The best leader is the best follower. Leadership theories and leadership seminars and research and all these things abound today, but very simply, when it comes to the kingdom of God, the person that God will pick to lead his people are the ones that take following very seriously. Following who? God himself. Following Jesus in his footsteps. Doing the will of Jesus. The best leader is the best follower. Leaders are followers. And the ones who really do an exemplary job are the ones who really follow the Lord in a very loyal fashion. We want that. We want to take what God has given and be able to give it to other people, which implies an influence. It's one of the basic definitions of secular theories and leadership. That is an influence that a person has on another person or group of people is an influence. There's a catalyst activity where people are mobilized toward an, an ideal or a goal. In the kingdom of God, God will select people who treasure what has been given to them to be able to pass that on to other people because they themselves have followed, themselves have followed that. Never get uh, fooled by any kind of Christian leadership teachings that have mere elements of secular input. We need to follow the Lord faithfully. Moses was such a person. He wasn't looking for anything. He was called. He was appointed. He was even hesitant. He was really humble. He also had a problem with fear. But God solved it. He felt inferior. But he was loyal to God. The Lord Jesus said, Whoever would be first among you, or the greatest, will be the servant. So Joshua loved God and loved Moses, served God, served Moses. He was faithful and he was hungering for more. Verse 12 on down to verses, verse 23. Someone please read that section. Exodus 33, verses 12 to 23. Verses 12, um, NLT version. One day, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways 
so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is yours, very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, If you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, Then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may look but you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. But my faith will not be seen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Moses sought God's leading in his presence. He said, as is plainly written here, I don't want to make a move if you don't go with me, if you don't go with us. Some of us have learned that. It's always best to wait on God whether it's moving somewhere, whether it's taking on a new job, leaving a job, leaving a place, even purchasing things, we can ask our Heavenly Father because He knows everything and He's all wise and He loves us and He loves to guide us in every detail of our lives. Why forfeit that? And why do things again, in that partial followership, if you will, follow him in certain things, but in other things, take that control. If I may say, the control freakishness must be crucified. We have to bring everything to the Lord. Always remember, it's not your money, it's God's money. It's not my money, it's God's money. It's God's house, it's God's, everything that I have is God's. It belongs to the Lord. I am a steward of what's been given to me because I have clothing in my closet and I can put on whatever I want and like it. doesn't mean it just belongs to me. It's a mindset that, again, we may understand in theory, but in practical, daily, working out, of the truth that will only happen if we talk to ourselves 
and say, everything you see belongs to God. We may have worked and earned things and earned the right and power and gathered the resources to purchase something. But after all, the very energy and the ability and the opportunity all from the Almighty God. How do we know that? Well, anybody on the face of the earth who has any amount of eyesight experience in this world, basic common sense and integrity, can see there are people who are able-bodied. Able-bodied. They have the muscle power, the manpower, the woman power, the energy. They ate their Wheaties in the morning. They're full of this energy to just go out and do whatever they need to, but they don't have the opportunity. They don't have the opportunity. Who gave us the opportunity and the ability? It's the Almighty God. There are others who have the opportunity. They have no ability, no ability whatsoever. Reminds me of a rich, I believe, oil tycoon in the 19th century, latter part of the 19th century. He was uh, maybe a billionaire by today's standards. Just a monopoly of the oil wells, and he had everything he could possibly desire, and very arrogant like King Herod in the book of Acts. Self-deifying, he just honored himself and oppressed people and thought he was God. One day he was struck with a horrible disease and he had chefs working for him in his huge mansion. And every day they'd prepare all kinds of foods with a so-called snap of his fingers. He can just have the best of the land, the most skilled chefs, to bring it fresh out of the oven, as it were. His favorite dishes, anything he can think of. When he got the disease, what they used to do is was the chefs would gather around the table and the chief chef would have everybody take the food to this man who now could not eat. Sense of smell was there, but he couldn't eat at all. Not these foods anyway, solid foods. And they would go by him in front of him and open the lid of those plates and bowls and trays to uncover the fresh aroma of breakfast or lunch or dinner. And this man who is so wealthy, so powerful by human standards, would take a long, slow whiff of that. And then the chef would proceed to close that tray or that bowl or that plate with the lid and go to the other side of the table, as it were. And the next chef would come and do the same thing, and he would take a whiff of that dish. And then when all the chefs passed by, they would all eat in his presence, and he couldn't eat. Oh, my God. He had the opportunity and the resources but not the ability 
who can give the ability that we take for granted? It's Almighty God. To humble ourselves and know it's God's mercy that causes us to have anything and we ought to be stewards. We ought to understand that mentality of a true believer is I'm a steward of everything God has given me. And it's well for us to remind ourselves and each other, particularly our children, our household. Then we'd be truly yielded to the Lord and we can be 100% loyal. To be the friend of God and to have the presence go with us, His presence, because we're following His lead and we're waiting on Him for the next move. To train ourselves and to pray, to seek God and say, God, from a heart of devotion, Lord, I truly, truly desire for you, oh my God, to lead me by the hand. And Lord, no matter how it looks from a human standpoint, no matter how many so-called human gurus, whether it be financial or real estate-wise or education-wise, whatever they say, the test will come up for every believer. Everything looks good. Everything looks good. Everything looks A-OK. I have the consensus of consensus of the experts. But I'm not through. What do you mean you're not through? You have all the evidence right here. You have all the resources, everything pointing to that this is the right thing to do. I need to consult with the God of the universe. Excuse me. That person will never fail. Every time David consulted with the Lord, he was successful. Certain times God said go up and other times he would tell David to hold back. How wonderful to be in the perfect will of God every day, every hour, really? Every minute? Every second? Is that possible? It's only possible because we have such a loving, almighty God. And he gives us the privilege of coming to his door for guidance every day, every moment. Many Christians we've counseled have made some grave errors because they gather certain principles from reading the Bible and they know some commandments and they make decisions and it looks like the loving thing to do but it's actually spiritually counterproductive because it's not based entirely on the revelation of God. You see? God gives revelation to guide us with every particular circumstance which may not be the same way that he leads us in other situations. It may look similar, but it's not the same. So God may come and say, don't do this. I know it looks loving, it looks like the right thing to do, but it's going to cause trouble, don't do it. And if anybody challenges you and says, well, that's not loving, I'm telling you what loving is, to protect your soul first. Sometimes that humanistic love can come masquerading as divine love, agape love, and it's not. It's a counterfeit. It's a reminiscent of 
Peter saying, Oh Lord, over my dead body as it were. They're not coming for you. They're not laying a finger on you, Lord. I've killed them in a second. Well, that's a paraphrase perhaps. With some liberty. But essentially he was expressing his loyalty to the Lord. To the Lord. And he took him aside and began to warn him sternly. Lord, it's not going to happen to you. No, 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 no. The Lord said, I'm going to the cross. No, 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 no. The Lord said, get behind me, devil. But wasn't that love? He's trying to protect them. He's trying... You don't have the things that God has, but what man has on your plate. May the Lord speak to us how carefully God can navigate us to prevent harm to our souls, which is the primary thing, harm to our loved one's souls. It's not the externals or the niceties and the mannerisms and that is, I should say, the socially acceptable norms of how you behave. You know, there are certain times you have to step up and say no to your own family, even if it seems to hurt them or hurt you. Because to do otherwise and be quote-unquote loving is to hurt God's spirit who says, no, 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 no. That's not right. The presence will go with those, the presence of God, whose hearts are loyal to God. They're the true friends of God. And Moses appeals once again to God as if God doesn't know. We're your people, God, remember? He's trying his best in what he's experienced so far. He'll learn more as he goes along. Where you don't tell God what to do. You don't have to really remind him about his responsibility. Especially in this case. It's okay to remind God. He doesn't forget, but it's our active involvement. Lord, but you said this, you'll do this. Yes. But once again, these people have sinned horribly. God said, I'll, I'll decide what to do. And yet he has this love for Moses because he knows Moses is learning, is growing, and he's desiring something of the great Almighty God. Lord, I, I know you love me. Your favor is with me, but I want to know more. I want to conclude with this. We have something unprecedented happening here. We know the fellowship that God had with Enoch earlier on in Genesis was on such a level that God just took him after some 365 years. He was walking with God for a good portion of those years since he came to know God. God took him. It was a rapture. And Moses here asks for something that no one ever asked for, at least it's not recorded, He's saying, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I'm your friend. Show me more. And something amazing happens here. God says, is that what you really want? Once again, it's reminiscent of John the Apostle leaning upon the chest, the very chest of God Almighty in human form.
God is so good. He's so beautiful. There's nobody like him. Oh, he's got such a big heart. Nobody like him. Moses pushes. Lord, I want to. I know I found favor, and can I just see your glory, Lord? I want to see more. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Nobody's ever asked like this. I don't care. I want to know you more. I'm going to do what you asked me about my presence going with you you want to see my glory I'll, I'll do this too I will make all my goodness pass before you the name of God and the attributes of God is the person of God the power of God so when God speaks his name just as we speak God's name, Jesus' name, there's power behind it. There's a revelation behind it. Not simply a description of some character qualities. He's declaring himself. There's a revelation of himself in power. It's manifested in glory. That's what it means when he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'm going to speak my powerful name to you. Reveal my glory in measure. And he says, once again, something he said earlier when Moses said, Lord, if you're going to do this and just blot out my name. He said, no, 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 no. The people whose names I'll blot out from my book, I don't care if it's your family, your relatives, your friends, your foes, are the ones who disobey me. Those are the people that I will take out of my book. Not just anybody, you feel it because you think I'm a little hard on people. Moses, as we said, he's learning. God is gracious, he's patient. Once again, he reiterates, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is not some kind of twisted predestination doctrine that people have that God just arbitrarily or randomly or whatever he feels like whimsically chooses people and rejects them no no it's very clear from the preceding passage that's relevant to this that I just quoted who he will remove from his side and distance himself from the people that he'll be gracious to and have compassion on are the people like Moses who he's speaking to very intimately now for loyalty. He said, I'm ready. I am ready to unravel the mysteries and glories of who I am to a tiny, less than a speck in the universe of a human being made in my image still seeking me. How wonderful God is. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. That is in Moses' mortal body. One day, according to the scriptures, according to Revelation, and Hebrews, and Timothy, and other passages in the Bible, we will see the almighty God in all of his glory. Can you imagine that? Oh, my God, nothing held back. Bible says we shall see him as he is we shall be like him 
But right now he can't take it. Moses will just, he'll just drop as a corpse instantly. You cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, look how wonderful he is. What a wonderful father. He makes provision. He says, you want this? You don't know exactly what you're asking, what you can handle. But let me make the adjustments for you because I want to give you what you're asking. How wonderful God is. Here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand. How delicately and lovingly God will come to Moses, blocking his face from being seen with his own hand. And then as he passes by, he says, I will remove my hand. You'll be able to see my back. glory of God passed by but my face shall not be seen this is history but doctrine also principles with application for us as we've been hearing how deep do we want to go with the Lord and how much do we want him there these Evil culprits that are around, brothers and sisters, that keep us from that intimacy. We may have that longing here and there. We never get around to going deeper with God because of what? The revelation even of this, that we can go that deep with God. Ask something unprecedented. God comes to meet us on that point. What are the culprits that choke that word in the revelation, the possibility, the cares of this life, the pleasures of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. They will come and vie for our affection, our attention. And if we're weak spiritually, we'll give in to it and say, well, I'm okay. I'm doing pretty good. Miss out on the deeper intimacy with God. And when we have that deeper intimacy with God, we'll definitely have a deeper impact on people for God. Next chapter, we see how the radiance of the glory of God in measure reflected on the human skin cells of Moses' body on his face. All of this is a revelation of what can happen to each of us. God is not partial. He loves us all, but the one who presses in like Joshua and Moses will get to see more of God that other people don't get to see. The one who wants to press in and lean upon Jesus' chest, will be given that privilege. Here's heartbeat. What a beautiful life to live. Before we ever get to heaven, we can have heaven come down in a big measure. And that radiance of God's glory stop the mouths of the gainsayers and attract people to the Savior 
like we never experienced before. May this be our heart's cry. We definitely don't want to be stiff-necked people. Refuse to do God's will and begin to twist God's commandments to suit our own desires, ungodly desires, like the people who keep on preaching once saved, always saved. Clear contradiction of the truth. Especially after knowing the truth. But rather we can be people who can be the friends of God. And what did Jesus say? You are my friends if... Who can finish that statement? You, you can obey just, my command. Amen. Praise God. You are my friends, and Jesus spelled it out, if you do what I say. In other words, if you obey my commandments, we can be God's friends. Friendship that God is speaking of is intimate friendship to the point where we begin to glow with a glory. It may not be visible the way the rays came off of Moses' face, but it will have a definite impact where the glory of God will penetrate into other people's lives and they'll know that you're very close with God and you've been spending time with the Almighty God. Glory be to God, shall we pray? I'd like somebody who's received something this morning from the Lord to pray. 